Well, please open up to Acts chapter 11, starting at verse 19. It's been great to go through Acts 1 to 11 or 1 to 12 as we have and uh, look at what God did in those early days. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us through your written word. Our Father, may your spirit help us today as we seek to understand your word and apply it to our lives and uh, send us out, Lord, holding your hand and uh, ready for your task this week. Amen. Well, uh, over the past few years, I've been very impressed with a church in Newcastle called Hunter Bible Church. They're an independent evangelical church that comes out of the tradition and flavour of Moore College and the Sydney Anglican churches. But Hunter Bible Church, I believe, is a model church. They're a very large church in Newcastle with perhaps up to a thousand people attending. They're extremely gospel-minded and extremely ministry-minded. Their lead pastor and all their pastors preach faithfully from the Bible and they reach out with the gospel to the city of Newcastle and they make sure they're training one another and that they're raising up many gospel workers for the future. Big question I want to begin with today is what is the church meant to be like? What is the church meant to be like. Today we come to Acts chapter 11, looking at the church in Antioch, the, the Gentile church that was made in those days, in many ways our mother church. And uh, having a think about how this church in Antioch was a model church for us, just like I think Hunter Bible Church is a model church for us as well. So big question we're thinking today is what is the church meant to be like from Acts chapter 11. So as we step through our message today, we're going to have three uh, points we're looking at from our passages. Firstly, the beginning of the church, then the establishment of the church, and thirdly, the life of the church. And we'll step into Acts 13 as well for that one. So first, the beginning of the church, the beginning of the Gentile church in Antioch, in Acts chapter 11. So would you have a look at Acts 11 and verse 19 with me. It says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So here we see the beginning of the Gentile church in Antioch. We notice that with the persecution, the death of Stephen, that the, the Christians were scattered at that point. And uh, it says some of them went out and were telling the Jews the gospel, but also some went to Antioch and told the Greeks, the Gentiles as well. And we see the result, don't we, of this evangelism. In verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And so what we see here is the first Gentile church. 
word Gentile means non-Jew, Christianity, uh, Jesus. Well, it all began with the Jews. But here we see the, the word is going out. People are becoming Christians all over and it's the first Gentile church. Uh, it says that they went out and they shared the gospel with the Greeks. Well, in Antioch, it was a predominantly a Greek city on the edge of the Greek world. It was a huge city as well, a great spot for the mission base in the ancient world. It was pretty much the third biggest city uh, in the Roman Empire. So what a great spot for God to plonk his mission church in to spread out to the rest of the world. Here we see the first Gentile church in the home base for the Gentile mission in the rest of the book of Acts. It's a really important church in the book of Acts. And it's really significant, isn't it, that it was filled with the Gentiles who'd become Christians now, in my days at SMBC College, we'd have missionaries come in every week to speak to us, and they would tell us about the importance of what they called the Indigenous Church. And what that is, is when they would go overseas and plant their churches and share the gospel, it's all very well for an Australian to go overseas and do that, but what they really wanted was for the locals to become Christians and run the church overseas themselves. It's so important, isn't it, for it to be homegrown and then to spread through the locals. And so this is what we see here in Acts. The indigenous Gentile church begins so that the gospel can go out to the Gentiles. And so, of course, in a sense, this is our mother church as well, isn't it? This church in Antioch, the first ever Gentile church. And we are the Gentiles, aren't we? So therefore, let us learn from this example we see in this church in Acts chapter 11. So we've seen the beginning of that church. Secondly, the establishment of this church. Have a look at verse 22. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. So we see there that the Jerusalem church hears about this great stuff happening in Antioch and they send Barnabas out there to check it out. Do you remember that this is kind of the pattern of what they've been doing in Acts? They've been sending delegates out from the Jerusalem church to check out the gospel work that's going on elsewhere. And so they send Barnabas out. We might do a similar thing at Presbytery. If something is happening out in one of the churches, send out a delegation to check out what's going on. And so they send Barnabas out to confirm the work of the gospel that's been going on in Antioch. And what does Barnabas find? What does he find when he gets there? We'll have a look at verse 23. He arrives and he sees the evidence of the grace of God and he's glad and encourages them all. Barnabas goes out there, this great fellow who we, we know is a great fellow, gets out there and he sees it. He sees the grace of God at work in that church. He knows they're the real deal. They're Christians. This God is really spreading things out to the world. He sees the grace of God in that church. 
Two elements to this, I think, would have been going on. Firstly, their doctrine, their understanding, their conviction of the gospel. They understood the grace of God. Barnabas went to Antioch and he heard them talking about the cross. He heard them talking about grace that comes to us through the cross. These Antiochians, they knew that it wasn't from their own works that they got to heaven, but it was from Christ. They understood God's grace. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. They got it and Barnabas was stoked, wasn't he? And the other thing they would have understood was that the grace isn't just in the head and the heart, but also in the hands. You see, the grace of God had impacted the way they were treating others. He sees evidence of this grace, forgiveness of one another, love towards one another, serving each other. This grace comes out in our practical lives as we treat one another with grace as well. So Barnabas went to Antioch and he saw the gospel being believed and applied. The gospel that the Lord Jesus died, rose again and was Lord of all. He saw it in that church and he was stoked, wasn't he? How's the grace-centeredness going in our church? You see, are we like the church in Antioch in that sense? Do we understand the grace of God? We will not get to heaven by the things that we do. The Bible says our very best works are filthy rags. They are a stench if we're trying to get into heaven with them. But we get into heaven by what God has done. Are we a church that proclaims the cross, that lifts high the cross of Jesus, understanding the grace of God? How would Barnabas feel if he came into Griffith Prezies? What would he find? Would he see the grace of God? And also in our practice, the grace of God in how we're treating one another. Are we treating each other with grace? It's a challenge, isn't it? I'd just like to commend to you one particular author and preacher uh, who I think demonstrates the grace of God. His name is Brian Chappell. I've got a picture there. Um, he's an American Presbyterian and uh, he's... He, his writings are all about God's grace. And so I just commend him to you if you want to listen to his messages or read his books. He is grace-centred in his approach and we can learn from him. Brian Chapel, with two P's and two L's. Well, we see that Barnabas encourages the church and then we see that he goes off and he finds Saul, Paul, to help him. Have a look at verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So we see that Barnabas has gone to Antioch, he's realised some great stuff's happening there, but then he goes off to Tarsus to grab Saul. And he brings Saul back and they minister to the church at Antioch. Now, why did Barnabas do that? Why did he go and grab Saul? Well, remember, he knew Saul very well. He was well ac acquainted with Saul. He was his, his new mate, in a sense. But he knew Saul's gifts. He knew Saul's Gentile mission as well. 
that Saul had been commissioned by Jesus to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And so here's this new you know, Gentile megachurch starting. Well, I better go and get Saul to come down and carry out the mission that God's given him. So he goes off and grabs him and we see there that then they meet with the church for the next 12 months and they teach them, uh, verse 26 I think it is, teach them, a, teach a great number of people and meet with them. So we see here Saul and Barnabas are trying to establish the church, trying to establish these Christians in the Christian faith. It's an example to us here, and I think this is the, the big thing that's going to come through this message today, the importance of making disciples. Barnabas and Saul stick around there for 12 months just trying to establish the church and teach them. So this is the importance of growing disciples of Jesus in our church. We need to go out and share the news, but we also need to stay in and grow one another in Christ. Now, our discipleship pathway here is connect, grow, serve. It's how we want to see people growing in their faith. We want you to connect with God and one another, to grow in Christ through a growth group and to serve the Lord in a ministry team. We want to grow disciples. We want us to move along that pathway and grow disciples. So how are we doing at that? And where do you sit along that pathway of connect, grow, serve? Do you need to connect more with people? Could you get along to a growth group and, and grow with one another? Or are you seeking to serve in a ministry team? We want to make disciples. A great uh, book I want to commend to you as well is a book called The Trellis and the Vine, which should come up on the screen. It's uh, produced by Matthias Media, if you want to get a copy of, of it. But it's all about how the church can make disciples, how the church can get distracted from this mission at times. And we can focus on all the, you know, titty-whittly things of Presbyterianism and church committees, and we can... can forget that our main game is making disciples in the world so I commend that book to you as well if you'd like to learn more about that the trellis and the vine what he says in that book is that we're meant to live like disciple making disciples you see are we being like Paul and uh, Barnabas in that sense are you a disciple making disciple for example could you meet one-to-one -one with someone once a week to read the Bible with them and be a disciple-making disciple? Disciple one another or you disciple them. Just meet once a week, 30 minutes, 60 minutes with another person to read the Bible and pray with them. Now, uh, Phil is... Uh, greatly trying to get us to go to men's convention. I haven't gone with him yet, but he'll get me eventually. I heard a story that at men's convention a few years ago, there was a talk about discipling uh, by a fellow called Malcolm Gill. And uh, he was saying that every Christian, every man or woman, every Christian, we need a Paul, a Barnabas or a Timothy in our life. We need a Paul. We need someone above us to mentor us and, and care for us and teach us in the faith. We need a Barnabas, a peer, to encourage us. But we also need a Timothy, someone below us, who we can disciple and mentor. 
So if we're making disciples, we're a disciple too. Could you consider finding a Paul, a mentor, a Barnabas, a peer to share Christ with and to encourage you, and a Timothy, someone that you can mentor in the faith? In the book of Timothy, it says, the things that you have heard from me entrust to reliable men who will then be able to teach others also. So there's meant to be a flow on things in the Christian faith, isn't it? You've heard something from someone and then you're going to entrust it to someone else who's then going to teach other people as well. God's calling us to be disciple-making disciples in the church. And I think the very fact that Paul and Barnabas spend the time here Spend the time with these people in Antioch to encourage them and strengthen them is a real model for us. So we've seen the beginning of the church, the establishment of the church, and thirdly, the life of the church, I think we see in this passage as well. What we see about this church here on two occasions is that they are sensitive to the voice of God in their life and then they provide a generous response to God's word. So first have a look at verse 27. It says, During this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit preached that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So first here we see that they are sensitive to the voice of God. The voice of God comes through Agabus the prophet. A prophet was someone who would speak the word of God to the people. And look what he says there in verse 28. He stands up and predicts that a severe famine would come over the entire Roman world. And Luke tells us that this did happen. So the question is, will the church at Antioch listen to the voice of God? And how will they respond to the word of God? And we see their response in verse 29 and 30, that they actually believe in this word and they send a gift to the church in Jerusalem, in Judea, through Barnabas and Saul. They believe the word of God that was brought to them by the prophet and they respond to the word of God in a very generous way. Uh, probably as a financial gift sent through Barnabas and Saul. So they were sensitive to the word and they were generous in their response. There's a second occasion we see this happen, so I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 13, please. If you would just turn to Acts 13 and we'll pick this up again. Let me read from Acts 13, 1 to 3. It says, In the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So once again there we see that they were sensitive to the voice of God. This time the voice of God comes directly through the Holy Spirit we see there and not through the prophet Agabus. And what does the Holy Spirit say? The Holy Spirit says to those church leaders, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now in the past 
20 years or so, there's been a debate going on in Christian circles about whether there's really a call to the ministry, whether people are really called to the ministry. And most um, people in, in my camp, the evangelical camp, they would say no. They would say that in the Bible, the language of calling is, is really just for all Christians. So, for example, in Romans, where Paul says, um, we've been called, we've been justified, we, uh, that, that all Christians are called to be Christian. So, evangelicals would say there's not really a call to the ministry because the language in the Bible is the calling to be a Christian. Uh, but, uh, and that's fine, but I mean, Barnabas and Saul seem to be called to the ministry here, don't they? See in verse 2, that the Holy Spirit says, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, how does the church at Antioch respond to the word of God here? We see in verse 3 that they are fasting and that they are praying and that then there's a generous response. In verse 3, they place their hands on Barnabas and Saul and they send them off. Now, this was a very generous response when you think about it because they've just sent off two out of their five church leaders. And that's a big loss for the church, isn't it? Um, when I, we, we, it's great to have the Welch family here today. Welcome, guys. And also uh, Heather as well. Um, Heather and Dave were at the wedding. And often I've regretted um, letting the Hayes and the Welches go from us. We really miss you guys, but we're, we're glad that ministry is um, productive where you are. Think about the sacrifice that Antioch made here, sending out two out of their five best people, sent them off to do ministry elsewhere because... The Holy Spirit had plans for them. Note this sacrificial obedience to the word of God that the Antioch leaders have made here. And we too, as people, need to respond to the Lord with sacrificial obedience to his word, just like the church at Antioch. What will that look like for us to respond to the word of God with sacrificial obedience? We heard a great talk at the wedding yesterday by Dave, thanks Dave, about how husbands need to love their wives with sacrificial love. So men, married men, for you to respond to God's word with sacrificial obedience, we need to live in our marriages with sacrificial love. For God has told us to do that, hasn't he? So may God help uh, the men here do that. How else will we respond to the word with sacrificial obedience? For some of you, it might mean leaving your careers and going to retrain at Bible college to be a minister or a missionary or some time of full-time gospel worker. For some of us, or really for all of us, it might mean that it will have financial implications, that we will give sacrificially to the work of the gospel also, for all of us, living sacrificially for God will mean turning from our sin, which can be hard at times, but it's what God wants. So how is God calling you to sacrificially obey him in your life? And what hard choices will you need to make in order to serve God in the way that he's calling you to serve? Something to think and pray about maybe, hey? Friends, today we've seen a description of the church at Antioch, the first Gentile church. 
And at the beginning, we asked the question, what should the church truly be like? And we see here, friends, God's, church, God's purpose for the church is that we be well-established, that we be well-established as disciples, and then we can reach out far. Then we can proclaim his grace to the unreached peoples that they may turn and believe. But first, we need to be well-established. Our Christian growth as individuals and as a church body matters. That's what we see Paul and Barnabas showing us here, focusing on our Christian growth as a people. You know, we always hear the cliche, we should be praying for growth in the church. But what kind of growth? Numerical, yes, but not just numerical, also spiritual growth. Have you heard about the third world, that the church is a mile wide but an inch deep? We can't be like that because we need to resource those churches, so we need to be really deep. We need numerical growth but also spiritual growth as well. Spiritual growth in you. We need to be a bunch of disciple-making disciples we must grow as God's own disciples and then we must reach out with the gospel. I mentioned before about Hunter Bible Church that they actually have a focus on training ministry apprentices and from my perspective it seems like um, the, the movement of ministry training has moved from the University of New South Wales to Hunter Bible Church. They're the core of it at the moment and they've trained over... 60 or 70 ministry apprentices there but friends we are all ministry apprentices aren't we in a sense we are all doing metro we are all being trained for the work of the gospel we've all got our l plates on for jesus and we're learning more about him and the challenge for us will be to make sure that we're training and discipling each other well first so that then we are equipped as a people to take the gospel out to the world the church is to be well established and then, then under God's direction to press out of here with the gospel of grace to the next street, to Clifton Boulevard, to the next village, to Bilbangra, to the next city, to Tamora and country, all those other countries with the gospel of grace. But we must be well established. So let's focus on that too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus into the world to save us. We pray that you would grow us in this good news, grow us in these foundations of our faith, faith so that we'll be ready to share and disciple others too. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.